Uh, but welcome back to our series on the nine marks of a healthy church. We've been covering uh, the, the essentials and the nine marks of a healthy church uh, this summer. Um, of course, it's a topical message, so we'll uh, have a base text in Matthew 28, but then we'll be uh, bouncing around to a couple different texts. Our outline this morning will be simple. We'll follow the five W's, the five W's, who, what, when, where, why of discipleship, um, and I'll kind of order them as I uh, felt was best to understand the topic. So, obviously, your topic this morning is discipleship. Is discipleship. Okay. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Come on. There we go. Did, this, did it change? There we go. I guess I have to use the little pointer. Sorry about that. Is discipleship. So, um, let me pray for us um, and ask the Lord's blessing on our time before we, we jump into this topic. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for a church, uh, a healthy church uh, at Countryside here that uh, you have been so gracious with um, and giving uh, good leaders that um, follow your word um, and strive to make this a healthy church, Lord. But we recognize it's all part of your grace. Uh, we thank you for a church that takes discipleship seriously. Uh, may you enrich us uh, from your word this morning, uh, teaching us about the life of a disciple. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You know that as a, as a Christian, you don't live on a, a spiritual island, right? I mean, if you think that I can uh, accomplish the things of the Christian life without the help of my brothers and sisters, you're believing a lie of Satan, and I hope you recognize that. There's no such thing as, as the Christian who lives on his own spiritual island. So this morning, as we are here gathered as a community of Christ's body, of believers, I want you to, to ask yourself, are you living a life of discipleship? Are you actively seeking to disciple others, and are you being discipled yourself? Let's begin this morning with the first W. What is discipleship? What is discipleship? Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. I won't read it just yet, so you have some time to get there. Um, in our summer series of evangelism, or excuse me, of essentials and nine marks, we covered evangelism twice. And we've discussed the importance of evangelism from this text here in Matthew 28. And we, we uh, talked about the fact that Jesus' approach to evangelism is holistic, right? Not only does he expect us to preach the gospel, but he expects us to make disciples. Uh, we first commu clearly communicate the gospel message. The gospel is a message. The fact that, that God was both sinless, or excuse me, Jesus was both sinless man and God, and that he came to earth to live a, a sinless, perfect life, but then die the death you deserve, and then was raised on the third day, conquering sin and death. And we can put, uh, declare this truth to, to every man, right? You, you be reminded that uh, we need to declare to them that they need to repent of their sins, turn from their sins, and turn to Christ. But that's only the first step. Read with you Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore, Jesus says, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you've heard messages on this passage, and certainly you have, the main verb you'll remember is to make disciples, make disciples. So after proclaiming the gospel message, 
to unbelievers as our job, the job, that job doesn't stop there, but we're to go on to make disciples. The first step is to preach and teach the gospel for sure. But how is it that we are to make disciples? This text makes clear by the two participles that follow. We're to baptize them and we're to teach them. Baptism, as you know, is the, the external uh, representation, right? You're, you're immersed in water, a representation of what, you, of what has happened inside, inside your heart, right? It, it represents the inward change that God has granted to you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And coinciding with a life of baptism, uh, and you know this if you've, if you've been baptized or you're considering being baptized, is a life of teaching, right? You're being taught uh, prior to your baptism. You're being taught within your baptism, right? You have to go to a baptism class and, and continue to learn. And then it's a lifelong life of learning after you've been discipled or after you've been baptized. And that's exactly what the word disciple means. The Greek word is mathetes, and it means simply to learn, a learner, someone who is engaged in learning from another. Uh, we might use the word apprentice, apprentice. Uh, one Greek uh, di the dictionary says the following, uh, one who is constantly associated with someone who has a teaching reputation or has a, a particular set of views that they are teaching. So then, discipleship is a, a teacher-student relationship. The teacher instructs and the student learns. And, and yet, it's, it's more than that. Um, we live in a, a highly educated culture, right? And, and everybody at some point has been involved in formal learning. You go to school and you learn from your, your math teacher or your science teacher for those that don't stay at home, but nevertheless, you still learn from a teacher. And when you go to those teachers, right, you're worried about the subject at hand. You learn math, and then you, the bell rings for those of you that go to school, and you go to the next subject, and you go to science, and you learn science from that teacher. But there's more to discipleship than simply learning a subject, Right? Those teachers aren't modeling their lives to you. You're not, you're not concerned so much, so much, although it's changed recently, which, with how much uh, you're absorbing from how they live their life. They kind of keep that private, and they just keep, teach uh, the subject at hand. Uh, but this is not the type of student relationship that we see within discipleship, uh, especially the, the scene in Scripture. So we need to make sure that we're taking our cues from Scripture when we think about this, this teacher-student relationship instead of what we know from the culture. Foundationally, discipleship is a life-on-life -life relationship, a relationship that's founded upon what? It's not founded upon the fact that we want to learn math or science or English. It's founded on the, the fact that we find our identity in Christ, right? Two people having been born again and repented of their sin and turned to Christ, then want to live like Christ and help each other to do that, seeking to live like him and for him. But what, does, what, what, does, what, what do I mean by life on life? I mean that um, while you might be learning from a particular Christian certain life skills, right? I mean, maybe a, a Christian teaches you how to change a tire on your car or, or, or how to 
I don't know, do any type of life skill that you might, might have before you, and you need to learn and have wisdom from an older Christian. But it's more than just those life skills, right? You're concerned with how they live each moment within their lives, how they honor and glorify Christ uh, in whatever task they're accomplishing, specifically how they live for and like Christ. So let me offer you, uh, bringing all that together, let me just offer you a, a definition of discipleship. A life-on-life relationship where one Christian teaches, counsels, and models another Christian, or excuse me, models Christ to another, resulting in both Christians' growth in spiritual maturity. Now, let me highlight a couple aspects of that definition for you. Obviously, I've made clear that the, the primary job of the disciple is to teach. That's made evident in Matthew 28. Um, and the primary job of, to baptize is of the church, uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Disciple, if we're talking about the individual, is to teach uh, both what to believe and how to live. If you're going to live a certain way, then you need to b- uh, believe certain things. This is why Paul says, you can just listen, in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he tells Timothy the following, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Or excuse me, he, he tells the Corinthians this, uh, speaking of Timothy. Verse 17, he says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every church. So the, the disciple's job is to teach, but that's to line up with his life. Uh, they also are to counsel. Uh, simply, we could say to, to provide biblical wisdom, right? Because the, the Bible doesn't answer every question we might face in life. I mean, well, what, what school do I go to or, or what job do I choose? Someone who's discipling you will help you in these decisions of wisdom, but they'll also admonish you and correct you when you're in sin, as a good Christian should. Galatians 1, or excuse me, 6, 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then third, they model Christ. They model. Matthew 28, 20 doesn't say, uh, teach them whatever you feel like or or teach them theology and then let them figure it out on their own. No, it says to teach them all that I have commanded you. In other words, teach them to obey Scripture. Right? They, they teach you these things with their mouth and then they do them themselves. Now, a couple caveats under what discipleship is and looks like uh, before we move on to the next W. First, age. Does somebody have to be older than somebody else in order to be in a discipleship relationship? Um, if you're thinking about Scripture with me, perhaps you're reminded that Timothy was younger than many who he discipled. First Timothy 4.12, Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. You see, Timothy was younger than many whom he discipled, and that's okay. The teacher does not always have to be older than those he disciples. However, I would say in your case, in high school, as you're continuing to mature, generally speaking, most of the time, your disciples will be older than you, and it would be unwise for you to disciple somebody who is, say, of college age or older. 
the case for a, 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 a high school student to uh, disciple uh, somebody who's older uh, would be unwise. Think, think about it this way, right? I mean, there is, there is a chance that you are more spiritually mature than a college student that maybe has just learned Christ, who has just come to faith in Christ. But that should humble you, not make you prideful, right? Because you recognize that it's only God's grace that has brought you to a saving knowledge of faith at a younger age. And you submit to those who are over you in leadership, whether that's, you know, the, 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 the pastor or the, the small group leaders here in church. And you remain humble, right? And you praise God for doing so, for, for saving you at such a young age that you can, you can grow and mature. And you have, Lord willing, many years to grow and mature. But nevertheless, I would exhort you to be discipled by someone who is older than you at this point in your life. Second, I want you to notice that in our definition, uh, both the growth of the student and the teacher is involved. Uh, Take this as an encouragement. Paul told Timothy that you are to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And if you're the one being discipled, don't, don't take this for granted. Uh, I mean, think about the fact that your parents are discipling you or your small group leaders are discipling you. When you are in your small group time and you uh, confess sin um, or you express faithfulness and trust in the Lord through the difficult situation that you're going through, this encourages your small group leaders. This encourages your parents, and they recognize your growth in Christ's likeness, and it encourages them, it encourages us to likewise grow in Christ's likeness. While there's a clear discipler and disciple relationship, the proverb stands true, right? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So having defined discipleship, we'll next move on to who to disciple. Who to disciple. Excuse that, pray for a moment. And um, this can be taken in two ways, right? I mean, who, who is the one who disciples and how do we choose who to disciple? First, let's talk about the, one, the fact that um, who is the disciple? Or excuse me, who is the teacher? Ultimately, according to Matthew 28, what do we say there? Jesus says that all of his disciples are to make disciples. So in a sense, we're all teachers, but not in a formal sense. Every Christian, just like you should be searching for someone to evangelize and to share the gospel with, you should likewise be searching and looking for someone to disciple. And oftentimes those two line up, right? You share the gospel with somebody, they repent and believe. What's the next step? You don't leave them hanging out to dry. You, you bring them to church. You make sure they're taught. Perhaps you yourself teach them informally. But ultimately, who's the, the ultimate teacher? Obviously, Jesus is. He's the archetype, we might say, archetype, we might say, um, in the teacher-discipleship relationship. And we know that he had many disciples. And we should look to him first and foremost. No Christian, I hope not anyways, none of you think that you should be in the discipleship relationship, that you should be coming up with what to do, with commandments, with how to live. You take your cues from Christ and his word. 
Matthew 4.23, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus, as he traveled the land of Israel and around, was a teacher. Mark 6.34, When Jesus went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And in the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did he do? He entered his ministry, and the first thing he did was teach. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, what does he do? He sees the people gathered there, and he teaches them. John 7, 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The next chapter, chapter 8, verse 2, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he taught them. Jesus was a teacher because Jesus was focused on making disciples. But not only did he teach the, the masses and, and the crowds, who else did he teach? As I mentioned, he teached here he taught his 12 disciples whom he chose, or 12 apostles whom he chose. He taught them day in and day out. And of the 12, Jesus, we know, had how many in his inner circle? He had three, James, Peter, and John. And he took even more time with these three men to pour into their lives. For instance, who was it that Jesus took with him to, to witness the transfiguration? He took those three men, Peter, James, and John. And who was it that was Jesus' main spokesman on the day of Pentecost? It was Peter. Who was it that Jesus chose to reveal his final revelation to that we have recorded in the book of Revelation? It was John, one of his three, his inner three. So from the life of Jesus, we recognize that he is a teacher, and I think we can draw a couple conclusions from this, and I don't, you don't need to write these down. We'll, we'll move on to some more after this, but just to, to kind of encompass all that I just said about Jesus. He taught broadly to all who would listen, and he did so uh, spreading his message of the gospel. Uh, but then he shared more intimately with those 12 apostles that he chose. So not only should we share with everybody that will hear the gospel message and the wisdom of God, but also within, the, within our local congregation, we should be pouring into one another's lives, those who we are closest with. And then third, Jesus took special time away from all the others to pour into three specific men. If we distill these three principles uh, down into one, we might say the following. Uh, we must be a model of Christ to every person we encounter while seeking to edify and build up every believer within our congregation, our local congregation, but realizing that we should dedicate a specific amount of time, uh, a pour into, we might say, a select few. So here are some practical tips on how best to discover who to disciple. The first one has been up there for you. It's pray. What did Jesus do the night before he chose his 12 apostles. Who remembers? How long did he pray? All night. He prayed all night. Luke 6, 12 through 13. It was at this time that 
Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when he came down from the mountain, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Ask the Lord to reveal to you who he might have you pour more of your time into. And at this point, for many of you, this means that you're the one being poured into. You're the one that is the learner, the one being discipled. Are you seeking to be discipled, right? When you're in small groups, are you seeking to be, be discipled and, and, and apply what you're being taught? Or are you, is it going in one ear and out the other and you're forgetting about it by the time you step out of this building? Or perhaps, you, you know, you, you are spiritually mature and you have discipled or you want to disciple. Are you putting those things into practice that you're learning in your small groups? Or have you completed partners? Do you have any desire to complete partners and then to disciple others? Countryside makes it easy, very easy. You don't have to come up with a curriculum. You can be discipled by someone through a curriculum that then you can teach to other people. But you have to seek out to do these things. It must be your desire to do so. Second, be practical. If you're seeking for someone to disciple, be practical. Do, do they live near you? Do they have the same schedule as you? Can you even make it work? Right? I mean, if you live on the other side of Dallas or South Dallas and somebody lives up near North Lake, I mean, it's going to take a lot of effort for you guys to meet together and, just, and, and spend a, a large amount of time together. This, of course, doesn't mean that it's impossible, but is it possible within the schedule that you have? Use your time wisely. Third, take a step of faith. You might never feel like you're ready to disciple somebody. You might never feel like, yeah, I've got it all down, and I'm ready to teach and show somebody how to live like Christ. The, the truth is you, you should never feel that way, right? We're constantly learning. We're constantly disciples learning. But, but take a step of faith and ask the Lord to show you, is there someone that you would have me disciple? And for most of you, this would be the opportunities set before you. I put up there, don't neglect the opportunities set before you. Some of these won't apply to you, but Lord willing, they won, they will. Husbands, don't neglect discipling your wives. And parents, don't neglect discipling your children. For you who are children, don't kick against your parents' discipling. And then how about some of you who are older siblings who might have younger siblings? Are you taking the opportunity to disciple them, to, to share the gospel with them, and to be a follower of Jesus Christ, display that in your own lives to your younger, younger siblings? Don't neglect those opportunities that the Lord has placed right in front of you. It's okay to ask for more and to seek more disciples and to make more disciples, but many of you have opportunities right before you. Don't neglect them. So that we've covered what of discipleship and the who of discipleship, let's next color, or excuse me, cover the where of discipleship. Where should we disciple? Where should we disciple? As I've mentioned, we need to first be faithful with those who are under our own roof, all right? Under our own roof. But generally speaking, within the, the context of discipleship, discipleship should take place within the local church. 
This is one of the, the nine marks of a healthy church, after all. And this is where God expects us to, to concentrate our time with other believers and our efforts. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4. I'll give you a second to turn there before I start reading. In this passage that I'm going to cover in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul isn't uh, speaking directly to discipleship. Uh, but the principles he covers in this passage can easily be applied to discipleship. We'll be in verses 11 through 13, and in these verses, we see that God has given specific gifts and offices to the church so that the people of God may grow mature. And in turn, they will help each other grow in maturity. In other words, we see in this passage that it's our responsibility, you and I, each and every one of us who are in Christ to labor for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, both old and young. Read with me verses 11 through 13. Paul writes, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In this passage, if you remember, one of the, the themes of Ephesians is the eternal plan of God. And here we see part of his plan for the church. The apostles and the prophets, you know and have been taught, were for the foundational age of the church. And during that time, God also rose up teachers and evangelists, and, and God still uses evangelists and teachers in his church to equip the saints, right? We, we would also say the elders, right? Pastors and elders. They equip the saints, Paul says, for the work of ministry. And how, how do they do that? They do that from the pulpit each week and from the examples of their lives. In other words, you know, pastors and elders prepare a message from God's Word and apply God's Word to our lives, and then we seek to, to put it into practice week in and week out so that you and I and, and, and all of the body of Christ can use our gifts for what Paul says here is the work of ministry. Now, what is, what is the work of ministry? Simply, ministry can be translated service. It's our service to one another. Pastor Tom and Justin and, and all the other la uh, pastors and elders labor to teach week in and week out so that we know how to serve one another, how we know how to edify one another. Paul says it this way, building up the body of Christ. In other words, edifying one another. We learn from God's Word how to live and act and how to be selfless and love one another from the preaching and teachings of God's word, and then we put that into practice, building one another up, right? To build up refers simply to a, uh, it's a construction metaphor, right? You can use it to say the building up of a house, but Paul uses it here in a spiritual sense. By way of illustration, right, you think of a, an, an engineer or an architect, he puts the, if we're actually building a, a building, he puts the to, together the plan. That's God. God puts together the plan for his church. And then the, 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 
project manager, we might call him, takes that plan and, and puts it into action, right? The, tells people what to do. That's the, the pastors and the teachers and the elders. And then you have the construction workers, the men who actually put together the building and who, who work together. That's both the pastors, because they are also Christians, but also all of us who are building one another up in service, loving one another, speaking the truth to one another. In other words, we're making disciples and helping disciples grow in Christ. Encouraging, counseling, and being there for one another. This is exactly what takes place in any discipleship relationship, both formally and informally, right? When it's formal, it's, it's more intentional, right? You're setting apart time to be with that person and to teach them, but it also happens informally, right? You have the opportunity to, to talk to somebody uh, before the church service starts or after the church service uh, ends, whether it's in small group or otherwise, and you have the opportunity to encourage them or maybe offer some counsel from God's word. In the same way, you're helping them to be more like Christ and you're discipling. And Paul says that when we do this, he says in verse 13, that we attain the unity of faith. We grow together stronger in Christ and we grow more mature in Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean I'm talking about the fact that we're where we disciple, we disciple within the context of the local church. But this doesn't mean that we can't disciple in places where, you know, like a coffee shop or have somebody over to our house uh, in order to disciple them. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying church as in the people, right? We're not talking about the building. We're focusing on the people of God that God has surrounded us with in the local body of church. There are exceptions, of course. Think of it this way, right? I mean, um, if... I, I had uh, scenarios uh, with soldiers who, when they're deployed, uh, they were no longer part of a, of a local church, so to speak, right? And they, a man, an older Christian, decided to disciple a younger Christian because there really was no church uh, in the country that they were at. Or think of uh, sailors, right? They're on a ship. They have nowhere to go to church. Maybe there's a, a chapel service offered, but oftentimes those are junk. And so they might have someone who disciples them in those contexts. But largely speaking, you should be discipling those who are in your local church and be discipled by those who are in your local church because we don't, we don't want to be, grow dependent on some other person, right? The Lord has given the church for your spiritual growth. But if we're, you know, skipping out on church because, well, I was in this discipleship relationship this week, so I don't really need to go to church. No, that's not how it works, right? The church God has given for your spiritual maturity, and within that context, you are discipled. So we've covered the what of discipleship, which is primarily a life-on-life -life teaching relationship. Uh, we've covered the who of discipleship, that is believers who are, are looking to be uh, taught and to grow in their faith and understanding of God. And we've covered the where of discipleship, primarily within the context of the local church. So our fourth point is when and how we should disciple. When and how we should disciple. And I mean, I could have stuck how with uh, any of these W's. I just felt it worked best um, under this first, or excuse me, this fourth point. And I, I think they'll become clear as I, as I work through this. Our definition that I offered was that discipleship was life on life teaching. This means that 
in some sense, discipleship is always taking place. It's always taking place. It's not something that we just, oh, I think I'll disciple now, or nope, I'm not going to be a disciple right now. I don't really want anyone following uh, how I follow Christ, so don't listen to me right now. No, it's something that always take place, not just something when we feel like it. Remember, we shouldn't think of discipleship as a, as a teaching, as in a class, right, a formal classroom setting. It's life on life. Unlike your math or science teacher, the Christian lives transparently, right? He allows you into his life and, and shows you how he deals with the highs and lows, how he, how he works through the the difficult times, the trials, and how he continues to praise God in those times, both the trials and when times are easy. He, he, he confesses sin, right, and, and, and tells you about the times that he's failed to kill sin and, and how he overcame that sin and, and leads you in your own confession and repentance that is the discipler to the disciplee. This is what discipleship calls for. It calls for transparent living among our brothers and sisters. And I, and I, think, I don't think there's anywhere clearer in Scripture that this takes place than in the life of the Apostle Paul. I've mentioned it a little bit, but Paul says multiple times to be imitators of him. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. And earlier in the same letter, I read it, already, but in 4.16, he simply says, therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. The only way that someone could be an imitator of Paul is what? Is if he lived a transparent life where they could see what he did and how he did it, what he believed, and how he lived it out. And this is Paul's language for discipleship. He doesn't really ever talk and use the word disciple or, or follow um, those Greek words, instead he uses the Greek word for imitate. He recognizes that the discipler's life speaks volumes. And you know this to be true in your own life, right? I mean, think about it. You're going through a rough time, and somebody tells you, count it all joy while you face this trial. And you're like, yeah, I know, I know, James 1, 2, count it all joy. But then when you see that person going through a, a trial, and they're continuing to count it all joy. They're praising God and giving Him all the thanks and glory, even during that difficult time. How much easier is it then to be like, yeah, I'm going to imitate that more mature Christian than when he only tells you to do it. This is why Paul tells us and tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself, that is your life, and pay close attention to your teaching. In other words, watch how you live your life and make sure that it lines up with what you're saying and what you're doing. Another example, you know that oftentimes, or maybe not oftentimes, but somebody tells you to, to do a certain thing, but then they do the opposite. And you think, well, what, what's the point? I mean, I, if you're not going to do it, then why do I have to do it? Right? Paul isn't about that. He doesn't say, do only as I say, not as I do. No, Paul says, do as I say and as I do. And it's not in a prideful or, or arrogant way, right? Like, ooh, look at me. Look at how, how, how Christian I'm living and how like Christ I'm living. 
it's a, a humility knowing that we're depending on the grace of God to do so. Paul writes in the, uh, his epistle to the Philippians, Philippians 4, 9, The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Don't just do as I do, like I said, do, or don't just do as I say, do as I do, Paul says. Now, this seems to up the ante of discipleship a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, it, it almost makes uh, being a disciple-er a little bit scary. You're like, well, what do you mean? Somebody is going to follow me, and someone's going to imitate me and watch my every move? Yes, that's true, but the, the point is that's the Christian life, right? That's nothing new. You're always looking to your brothers and sisters in Christ and seeing how they live. And sometimes you see what not to do, and that's understandable. None of us are perfect, but that's nothing new. And it is, as I mentioned, both for the, the discipler and the disciplee, the one discipling, right, recognizes that he's teaching this person to live like Christ, but he also is recognizing that this person is watching me carefully, and therefore, I need to live like Christ. So it's both the sharpening for the person who is learning and the person who is teaching. It's been said that you really don't know something well until you teach it. That's helpful in the, the life of discipleship as well. Now, uh, the Greek word for imitate is mimetes. Mimetes, you can hear in that word, uh, our English word for mimic. Uh, it's simply the fact that you are following and acting uh, just like someone else. You're to see them as a, as a model or a pattern of how to live. Uh, is anyone here good at drawing? I know, all right, I know another friend of ours is too. If you don't know, Max is an artist. Max is an artist, and he's a pretty good artist at that. If, if I took uh, one of Max's concepts and tried to sketch it, it would be terrible. Right? You, you would be like, is this a person or is this a moose? I'm not sure. But if, but if I took one of Max's pieces of artwork and I laid a thin piece of paper over it, maybe shine some light on it and could see the lines, oh, okay, now I can follow. It still might not look as good as Max, but you'd be able to tell, yeah, this is a person preaching from a pulpit or whatever it may be. Or, I don't know how the modern man, or how I should say, I know how the modern man lives. I don't know how the man lived before YouTube, Right? Think about it. How many of you use YouTube? And I don't know how to do this or that or fix this or that. Right? I don't know how to play this chord on the guitar or um, throw a curveball or whatever, whatever it is. Right? You go to YouTube and you, somebody teaches you how to do it. And it's much easier having watched somebody explain it and do it for you. It's the same for the Christian life, although I don't advise you to go to, to YouTube to try to learn how to live like a Christian right? It's easier when we have someone to mimic, when we have someone showing us how or what to believe and how to live that out. But, and, and you need to recognize that this, this Christian life, I mean, don't, don't think of it, we, we, we opened up with the fact that it's, you don't live on a spiritual island, right? You're not in this thing on your own. God has given you brothers and sisters in Christ to help you to walk in this Christian life. And God expects you to, and commands you even, uh, to follow those who have gone before you. So, the when of discipleship is always. We're always discipling. Think about it this way. Those of you who have 
uh, did VBS this summer? Anybody do VBS this summer or work with Awana in the falls? In the fall, right? You know when you help, those kids are watching your every move, right? Discipleship is always happening. And how? How do you disciple? You do so through imitation, following a life that is worthy of imitation. Um, now, I want to take with the, some of the time we have remaining uh, to walk through some of the passages that Paul calls us to imitate, uh, whether he's calling us to imitate him or he's calling us to imitate God or he's calling us to, to imitate other Christians, because I think it'll be helpful, right? I mean, Pastor Tom loves music. Justin loves basketball. Does that mean that then I'm supposed to play basketball and sing the national anthem at halftime? Because that's what my leaders do and I need to mimic them? No, of course not, right? So let's walk through these passages together and it'll give us an idea of what Paul expects of us. Beliefs and behaviors to be imitated as a disciple. And just a caveat real quick, um, I had the privilege of sitting under Dr. Uh, Brad Clausen. He's a, a professor at TMS and he's also um, an elder out at Grace Church. Um, and much of what I'm about to teach you, I've learned from him. So I just want to give credit due uh, where it's deserved. First, Paul tells us to imitate him in being humble and self-abasing service for the benefit of the church. I already read this passage this morning, but I'll return to it quickly and remind you of it. In 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Paul says, Therefore I exhort you to be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And Timothy will remind you of what I did and what I taught. And this is within the context of, you remember, the Corinthians are arguing, well, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul. And they're saying, well, it's better to follow Apollos, or, or better to follow Paul. And they're, they're arguing over who's better or who to follow, right? And, and Paul reminds them, it's, it's not Paul, it's not Apollos, it's God who waters, right? It's God who gives the growth, or excuse me, it's God who gives the growth, and therefore, we, we praise and honor him, and we do the work that God has given us, and don't worry about the work that God has given others. They are to get to work and equip God's church with the gifts that he has given. Second, Paul writes later in this epistle, that is in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I am also imitators of Christ. He's referring to the fact that we need to sacrifice personal preferences or rights in order not to be a stumbling block for the gospel. At the end of chapter 10, Paul says the following, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jew or the Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that many may be saved. In other words, our freedom in Christ is not to serve ourselves, it's to serve others and assist in gospel proclamation. Third, we are to imitate God's love. And specifically, we are to do so through kindness and forgiveness. This is found in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says the following. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The verse preceding that, 4.32, says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, we are to be imitators of God in love and kindness and forgiveness. Next, 
We are to imitate the Thessalonians, Paul says, in their joyful reception of God's word, particularly in the face of harsh opposition. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in the first letter, in the first chapter, in verses 6 and 7, he says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in the surrounding cities. Never underestimate your example when you submit to God's word, no matter how painful it might be in the moment. Fifth, Paul says that we are to be blameless in speech, conduct, love, purity, teaching, patience, perseverance, and suffering. And he says this in the context of uh, teaching Titus and Timothy, his apprentices, right? They have followed Paul in all of these things, and they are now an example to the churches there, uh, whether in Ephesus or on the island of Crete. We too are to follow Paul in these things, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, teaching, patience, perseverance, and suffering. And then sixth, we'll, do, we'll need a little bit of uh, explanation, but Paul says to the Galatians that they are to live out the full implications of the doctrine of justification by rejecting dependency on the law. In Galatians, Paul, in Galatians the letter, Paul commands them to follow his example of relying on faith in Christ alone, in the person and work of Christ alone. If you don't know, there were false teachers that snuck into the church of Galatia and, had, and tried to convince the Galatians that they needed circumcision to be Christians, right? They were Jews that were saying, well, you, yeah, you're Christians, but, but you still need to be circumcised and you still need to, to follow these traditions of Jews. But Paul says in Galatians 4.12, I beg of you, brother, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Basically, imitate me, right? In other words, he's saying that he was once one of those prideful Jews that his faith was placed in all of those external rights, but he says, no longer, be like me and have your faith be in Christ alone for justification. So, there are, there are more, Paul uses to be sure, more texts uh, that speak of imitation, but there are a few, a few for you. Now, why should we disciple? Why should we disciple? This is pretty simple. I'm not going to spend too much time here. We obey out of love and for the glory of God, right? We're commanded, we know that in Matthew 28, we just covered that. We're commanded that we need to make disciples, but we don't obey simply because we're commanded. We obey because we love God and we love his people and we want to see him glorified. Finally, real quick, I want to give you a few implications this morning. You can go ahead and write them down and I'll walk through them real quickly. Be a good learner. All right, many of you are not in the realm of being the discipler yet. You are still a disciplee. You are still learning. So be submissive and learn from God's word. Also respect the power that personal example has on other people. When you see other people struggling through 
through trials, but still giving God the glory or obeying even when it uh, seems like the last thing you should do or it's going to bring ridicule upon yourself or whatever it may be, right? You see these things and you're encouraged. And you know also that when you disobey, especially for you, you that are older siblings, what happens? Your younger siblings are like, well, they disobeyed. I too will disobey. Third, acknowledge that disciple-making requires more than mere preaching and teaching and examine yourself to see if your life is worthy of being followed. Fourth, discipleship is hard work. It's hard work. We didn't have time to go to Colossians 1, but there Paul says that he toils and he struggles and he labors. He uses words like uh, an athlete would use, struggling to the, to the point of exhaustion. But, but not giving up until the end of the race or the end of event, or a soldier struggling to the, the end of a battle, but not giving up till the end of the battle. And then fifth, imitate Christ as the true archetype. He is the one that we are to imitate. And by God's grace, may we all be able to say, like Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Christian life and discipleship. You have so graciously put others in our lives to help us become more like your son. Lord, help us to, to seek out these relationships and to, to be good learners and good disciples, those who uh, seek to be like your son through the example of those within the congregation that we are already in. And Father, for those of us who are seeking to be disciples or teachers of disciples, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to, to, to spread and, and to proclaim the gospel so that we would make more disciples and make our life uh, attract them to the goodness of who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.